Hello and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. In addition to our YouTube channel, you can also find my podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other podcast streaming platforms. So please make sure you subscribe, leave a comment, rate our, our podcast uh, as we continue to grow this thing from the ground up. I have a very distinguished guest today. My guest is Coach Ray Scott. Coach Scott was part of the early wave of black NBA players like Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain and others who literally changed how the game of professional basketball was played and perceived. He was also a very successful coach in the NBA. He's the author of the brand new book, The NBA in Black and White, the memoir of a trailblazing NBA player and coach, which chronicles his historic time as a player and coach in the NBA. And I'm pleased to welcome Coach Ray Scott to the Edric Show. How are you, sir? I'm well, Edric, and it is really great to be with you on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's get into the book. So tell me, what motivated you to write this book and tell your story? You know, it's kind of a, that's a great question because it's so wide open because it came from discussions that I had with my wife and then my friends. And so people kept saying, you know, you should write a book. And the thing about writing a book is, you know, you have to get the publicist and uh, the, all these people on your team and all of that. And so I had none of those. And this guy comes in to my life, uh, by, and he's the co-author, Charlie Rosen. And he had written a book on Phil Jackson, which mm -hmm. was a, a bestseller. And it's now even a televised bestseller, The Last Dance. Um, but he was part, his book was part of that uh, uh, experience. And so when I talked to Charlie, he said, man, you know, you got a book in you. And I said, yeah, but nobody wants to, I'm, you know, I'm not Julia Serving. I'm not uh, Charlie Scott. I'm not Elgin Baylor. And people reminded me of that. I said, you're not, you know, you're not a star. And so they reminded me of that part where they said, you know, readership, viewership, you know, they, we like you to have an identity. And so Charlie said, listen, you got enough of a story that that story should be told. That's the important piece here. So between Charlie Rosen and Jennifer Scott, my, my, my bride, they pushed me into getting uh, doing this book. And Charlie went out and got the publisher. And the publisher read what we had put together. And he said, this book is for this time. And it's, it's kind of a parallel history for me. Because number one, Eric, I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about John Fitzgerald Kennedy, mm. how he changed the forecast of the world as it was for African-Americans in 1960. <clears throat> Excuse me. So John Fitzgerald Kennedy, when he was elected, he was the first Catholic ever elected in America. And he was a Northeastern kid, but he had a worldview. And he said, as part of my worldview, what I have for the United States is I want the African-American experience included, not excluded. And I want that to, to happen. And so my seat to visualize all of this and to share all of this in 1960 happened to be the NBA. I was drafted into the NBA in 1961. I was the fourth player picked in America. And, uh, and I don't know what people know about the NBA at that time, but there was no pomp and circumstance. <laughs> like them. 
I was actually on a, on a subway in New York when I found out that I was selected. So those experiences like that, having that worldview of a growing NBA and a growing United States, you know, on that one side with Dr. King and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers, and Emmett Till and Rosa Parks. And then on the other side of it for me was the NBA with Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Oscar Robinson, Maurice Stokes, these great players. That was my view. So I happened to be in the, I always say I was in the stands with some very, very great people that were doing some very, very great things in America. And so that gave me impetus to bring all of those experiences together uh, from the 50s and 60s and 70s, actually, um, until today. And that's what I tried to cover in my book. I tried to give people a vision of what we were doing with respect to music and clothing and, and books and uh, just in college and all of that and segregation and integration and how all of that played such a huge role. But there was one courageous man that stood up and said he wanted us as a people embraced. And that was John Fitzgerald Kennedy and certainly Dr. King and Malcolm X and the aforementioned folks, they were out there fighting to make it happen. Um, you mentioned race, but before I go there, uh, I would be remiss. You grew up in Philly. Yes. So tell me about, because it's such a historical basketball town. So tell me about the legacy of Philly basketball and how did it influence your game? Well, my game, I started, my game actually began at 10 years old because I discovered basketball and I discovered it where I played and practiced by myself. And then it became a team game. And so you could become something or someone larger than yourself. You, you became part of a team. Uh, and part of this excursion that took off uh, at 10 years old. Um, and I just fell in love with the game and I happened to grow to be a, a six foot nine inch all city player, which is not what anybody was looking at me as at that time, because I was just a kid from South Philly, but the big basketball star in Philadelphia was Wilton Norman Chamberlain. Hmm. And I was 14, he was 16 and he was six foot 11 inches. And at that time, Wilt Chamberlain was scoring 60, 70, 80 points a game in high school. 32-minute games. Mm. And so Wilt Chamberlain was the guy that made high school sports front page. Because if you recall, you know, high school sports never never even got a column. Nobody even followed it. But because of Wilt, they began to follow it. And so guys like myself, who happened to be in that position in Philadelphia, began to follow uh, along after Wilt. And then out on the West Coast, you had from the 56 Olympics, Bill Russell. So Bill Russell, we, we had high school Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell in college. And so people began to really want to see these exceptional players because basketball it was a spectator sport. You know, there was no television, radio, you know, it was spectator. It was newspapers, a little radio, but a lot of spectators. And so the spectators were the ones that brought, bought into the sport itself. And principally because of the five individuals that I named 
in uh, Oscar and Stokes, Maury Stokes, Russell Chamberlain, Baylor. You know, those guys were such great players. Everybody wanted to see them. Remembering that the NBA only integrated in 1950. In 1947, when they began, they spent three three years as a segregated league. So the wow. world began to change and turn right under our feet, Edric. And by the 60s, after the Olympic year of the 60s, when we only had three African-Americans on the 1960 Olympic team, and that was Oscar Robertson, uh, Walt Bellamy, and Bob Boozer, three players. That's it. That by 64, with the pronouncement by uh, President Kennedy, we had five players on the Olympic team. And that that gradual change there, that subtle change, that shift began to happen in America. And you could feel the ground just moving under our feet with integration, voting rights, civil rights. And then we came came uh, to battle against the Vietnam War. So all of these things in that 10-year period, all of those assassinations that occurred, the world was just churning, churning, churning. And my seat to witness all of this was the, uh, was the NBA. And, and you mentioned, and I'm going to do a quick aside here, because what you said, you said something here that, that kind of triggered another question, which is um, up until that point, I'd say, you know, the 50s, 60s, um, you know, we had the pol- major politicians, we had entertainers, but this almost became the era of the athlete as global entertainer and someone who could articulate a consciousness that was needed and needed to be uh, put out there for the people. You mentioned Bill Russell. You mentioned uh, later on, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, where athletes suddenly were the bellwethers or the the, the folks that people turned to for guidance and and change. So when you were going there, and you were right there when all of this was going on. So did you notice a subtle shift away from maybe politicians to others to where athletes now were, were standing up and exerting themselves as, as folks who, who were articulating for change? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it began subtly, it began in the fifties, you know, with Bill Russell, like I said, Bill was a, was an Olympian in 56 and there was maybe one or two uh, African-American Olympians, but Bill Russell was a very outspoken guy. And people think he's from from Oakland, but he was born and raised principally uh, as a young man in the South, moving to Oakland. And so as he learned his lessons uh, and and had his observations in Oakland, that was huge with what he came forward with uh, and what the theories that he could espouse. Hmm. Uh, So we heard Bill Russell and, and what he was bringing to the fore, we heard Wilt Chamberlain and what they were bringing to the fore. But I thought that real activist leadership at, in that period uh, was through William Felton Russell. He was the guy principally that led that parade. Uh, there were other great athletes, and they, they fought bigotry in their own ways, but they didn't have the leadership banner that you alluded to that, that Russell had. And then Jim Brown came into being, but that was, you know, a different sport, football. But I think I agree with you that I think through uh, the, uh, how do I want to say this? Uh, because you have, a, 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 you have a, a, a realm that you are addressing that's fixed. They read about you every day. Mm-hmm. And that uh, you had that sport 
I, I would say wrapped with you held that part of, of, of the country with they they paid rapt attention to what you were saying. And so that began to change a little bit in the 50s, but it, it was a crescendo uh, in the 60s. And I think that with the integration of schools, if you recall, very few universities were integrated. You know, you talk about the Southeast, the North, the, the Northeast schools. We were, we were not in those schools. Well, all of a sudden, we, we were going to HBCUs. Those were that were trying to achieve educational levels. But when you talked about the uh, sports levels to get to the uh, be professionals, you wanted to go to a school where you could be seen, yeah. where you could be heard. And that began to happen in the 60s. In fact, I, I remind people that in 1964, one of the last schools I remember uh, uh, integrating was Baylor University in Texas. Mm. I remember it being a big thing to me in 1964 that a school in Texas finally was integrated. So that was a, that was a huge period. I, I, I like you bringing that up because that kind of is the substance of, of my book. You know, looking at that growth, subtle as it may be, uh, and I like that you said it seemed to be through the sports realm, and I could say that, but I thought Dr. Uh, King and SNCC and SCLC, I, I think the kids in college were very important because they were sitting at those lunch counters. They had the courage and the bravery to uh, attack racism in America. Hmm. And I, I admire that to this day. So I'm privileged that I got to write about that while living that life. In your book, you talk about um, some of the ways off the court that you and your peers had to deal with racism in terms of places where you couldn't go to eat and how um, suddenly you guys were breaking down those barriers, too. In today's world, sports world, we see the, you know, the first class travel and private jets and all this and that. But when you guys were on the road, uh, it was literally on the road. So talk about some of the things that you guys had to endure and what you had to push through so that the young men today can go and, and, and be wherever they want to be. Yeah, well, in, in, those, in that era that I came through, uh, when you say first class, that's a misnomer. <laughs> first class was somewhere in some other part of society. It was not with us. <laughs> but we were, we were fortunate that we had the opportunity, and we have to be thankful for that. But... Uh, that first class was really something that was fought for in a very subtle way uh, through the auspices in 1966 of Oscar Robertson. Because until 1966, no, we did not experience first class, unless maybe some guys might have behind the scenes or what have you. But on the whole, professional sports was not in the realm of first class. And so our accommodations were second rate. Uh, our travel was second rate. You know, we, we were scrunched up in airplanes and there was no first class flying. Uh, we, we didn't have king size beds. Uh, uh, restaurants, there were restaurants like in St. Louis that would not service, but that was specifically tied to St. Louis, not the rest of the league. Although I will say we had to watch ourselves in various cities like New York like uh, 
boss. And I write about it in the book about all of the uh, things that we had access to. But we gained access. And I think we gained access through our behavior, through leadership, and through the pronouncements. And that the people in the United States continued to support professional sports. And that's, that's where you saw that growth. And that's why I was talking about Oscar Robinson, because he provided that roadmap by bringing in the Players Association slash union. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I settled in a union town in Detroit. So I certainly had a real understanding and a comprehension of how important unions can, could be because I watched them, the unions, build the middle class in Michigan. So I saw that up close and personal, but I was in the coterie of uh, Oscar Robinson's group that worked for that advancement in the NBA. And so from 1966 until 1970, we worked diligently for our um, first-class treatment and for our union, and the union was certified in 1970. And that was really because of uh, of, of of Oscar Robertson. Um, I, want, um, I definitely want to get to your career and definitely um, talk about your coaching ability. But I want to stay for a second on Oscar Robertson because you you've mentioned him several times. For those of us who didn't really get to see him play, for those of us who, who didn't get to experience the impact he had on the basketball court, um, can you share what it was like to watch Oscar Robertson play and just how great he was? Yeah, as a Detroit Piston, it was quite painful. <laughs> because he might, he is probably, if there's a group of players and you would point to them, and, and players can only be great in their era, as, as much as people like to talk about the greatest of all time, players are, are truthfully, you have to be great in the era that you're given to perform. And playing alongside of Oscar, playing against Oscar, He's probably one of the finest basketball players I've ever been on a basketball court with. Um, not seeing him is, I mean, please, if you can on, on YouTube, what have you, you know, try to find some material on him because he was an absolute great player. But his proficiency in, to me was above his shoulders, as great mm-hmm. as he was. His mind was incredible. He came out of the University of Cincinnati, a Catholic school, and he came out of that school with leadership qualities. And he just, he made him virtuous for his position. Uh, Because when you look at, Edric, when you look at all the guys walking around today, making 20, 30, 40 million dollars. 50 million in some cases. In some cases, (laughs) Those guys, in my opinion, they should be sending flowers or roses to the Robinson household at least once a year because he's the guy that fought for those uh, positions against against the NBA owners. NBA owners that didn't believe that as African-American players we had value. And quickly they learned that we did because when you had Oscar Wilt, Russell, Chamberlain, these guys, you came to find out very quickly who the fans were coming to see. And that has built over the years. And so now there's no question. There's absolutely no question 
you know, it's it's Kobe, it's LeBron, it's it's Allen Iverson, you know, it's these great players. But when you think of that core group that sold that image, and I can never, ever forget the two guys I hold responsible for bringing us to the national stage, and that's Larry Bird and the Magic Man, Magic Johnson, one in California, one in Boston, and it was a dream made in heaven, East Coast versus the West Coast. And that was the era I fell in love with the NBA. Uh, it was around that time. Yeah, that was that was the era. Those were, but those were the two guys. Now, Bill Bradley and Cassie Russell, they brought it into the televised era because in the mid '60s, one Bradley came back from being a Rhodes Scholar, played at Princeton, and had a storied career. Cassie Russell had a storied career at uh, Michigan University of Michigan. However, they got the attention of the cameras because they had played in a holiday festival tournament in New York and they both played extremely well. And, but it wasn't the East West thing that you had going with Burden. <laughs> Burden magic simply lifted the league to another level. Now, Julius Irving was great for tele for televising the ABA. He built the, literally built the league, but he joined the uh, joined the NBA. And so I don't think he ever got the stature he deserved uh, because of that. But that's that's all in marketing, you know, that that's beyond our control. But I just remember those guys working so hard uh, with their images and their games and doing things. And it just lifted our game way, way, way up there. Now, you had a successful career in the NBA. And speaking of the ABA, you also played in the ABA. Uh, but after your career, you had an opportunity to do something that very few African-Americans had done. You became a head coach in the NBA. What was that experience like uh, making the transition from being a player to now you're a coach? And at the time, were you thinking about the significance of that? Because ultimately, you became coach of the year, the first African-American man that went coach of the year in the NBA. So as you're going through all of that, was the historical significance something that you were you were thinking about? No, no. no. What, what you're thinking about at the time is those 12 guys you have to face in the locker room because you've got to, it's, it comes down to preparation and philosophy. And I never thought I was going to coach. Earl Lloyd, who was the first African-American to play in the NBA, he was my first, he was an assistant coach, but he was a scouting coach that brought me to Detroit. Earl Lloyd, who played, Sweetwater Clifton, and Chuck Cooper are the guys that planted that whole piece in America, African-Americans, to play the NBA game. Because what was famously said at that time, and it wasn't very nice, they'd say, oh, they went to African-American schools or black schools or Negro schools, they can't play. Hmm. Which turned out to be absolutely the opposite. But those three guys, those are the three guys that put their toes in the water and really, for Ray Scott, began to make that happen. When the success of that I enjoyed, it came about through many people that helped me. Um, when I stood at the middle of the of court in 1974 and received the Coach of the Year, I was just wondering how a kid from a third floor <laughs> South Philly, you know, went to Catholic school, went to public school, went to Catholic University, 
played three years in the Eastern League, and then I was drafted as the fourth player picked in America, finding out on the subway, how did I ever get here? Hmm. I got there because Earl Lloyd again brought me back to Detroit as his assistant. I was Earl Lloyd's assistant for seven games. Mr. Zollner, the owner of the team, said he wanted to make a change, and he put me in as coach. And I said, I never aspired. I'm just going to help out my friend, Earl Lloyd. I wasn't looking to be a coach. And Earl Lloyd looked at me and said, you got to take this job. And we let it left it right there. I took the job. I just put into motion the plans that Earl and I had and what we had talked about, because Earl also was the first African-American champion in the NBA. He's got one of those big rings that he won in 1955 with the Syracuse Nationals. So Earl became a top flight basketball mind in the NBA. So I like to think that's part, the, the part of his mind that brought me back to Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> but I came back and I had uh, Dave Bing and Bob Lanier at two Hall of Famers. I had good players at Curtis Rowe from California and uh, John Mingel, Chris Ford and, and Stuart Lance. We were a good team. And the guys brought into my philosophy uh, that, that, I had learned under good coaches, Al Bianchi, Gene Shue, Earl Lloyd again. Uh, so I had a coaching philosophy, and I said I would try to put this into place. But I never thought that at the end of the day they'd be saying, you know, Ray Scott's the coach of the year. Hmm. I, I'd be lying to you if I told you that. But I just I did the best that I could do with my team and trying to build an organization. And I met immeasurable success. Uh, because it had never happened before uh, with the Detroit Piston team that they played so well that they were 52 and 30. And we were battling with the Milwaukee Bucks with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Chicago Bulls with uh, Norm Van Leer and Jerry Sloan. Uh, we, you know, when you get into that territory, that's, that's pretty deep water. So uh, that, that coaching I would have to say it represented a lot of people in my life. When you were coaching, and this is this question is just way out of left field, but were you mindful of uh, fashion in terms of what you were wearing and how you dressed? I mean, were you did you have the you know the flared pants? I mean, how was what was your fashion sense back when you were coaching? You know that that is an incredibly great question because <laughs> I laugh about it because this is in the seventies, and the seventies were platform shoes, which I had. <laughs> bell bottoms, which I had, hip huggers, which I had, the plaid shirts, you know, all of that, that fashion of the time, I embraced because it was so comfortable. I remember people dressing, coming out of the 60s and 70s, dressing for comfort and expression. Mm. That was our self-expression. I'll never forget James Brown saying, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. <laughs> of that era so that dressing that uh that era was so important and it was so important in the sports leagues because the sports league at that time were bringing in more and more african-american brothers um we have a few minutes left but i want to talk to uh, now about um in the book you write about so you had the opportunity to rub shoulders and befriend some of the most iconic entertainers and politicians uh, of that era. So uh, what was it like 
being, you know, friends with Muhammad Ali and Aretha Franklin and all of these folks who were doing things in their own world, but you were able to cultivate a friendship with these folks. And, and again, some of the most iconic uh, people and, and characters from that time. Yeah, I, I, I think that time in the 60s and 70s, we were more community as people, even with those that achieved, we were community. And I just remember coming to Detroit, you know, and I remember the change in music in the 60s, you know, Iron Butterfly and Led Zeppelin and Steppenwolf. But then there was Motown. Hmm. And when Motown came into its being, those young people were really people that resided right in Detroit. So as I'm walking around, traveling around, I'm meeting my fellow cohorts from Detroit. And it's the Four Tops or the Temps. You know, Aretha I met in Indianapolis. I was 22 years old. Aretha was 19. She sung at a club called the Pink Poodle. She came down from the stage on her break. And there was one empty seat in the house. And as our Lord would have it, that seat was next to me. She sat down in that seat and she said, I'm so tired. And she said, hi, I'm Aretha Franklin. I said, hi, I'm Ray Scott and I'm a Detroit Piston and you're a Detroit legend at, at 19. And we began to be friends and we stayed friends uh, until she went home to heaven. Miss Franklin is the person that gave me a lot of impetus in Detroit. And I'll tell you why. I was traded in 1967. And when I was traded over to the Baltimore Bullets, the guys, a couple of my teammates, took me out to a club. And we go to the club, and we're sitting there, and guess who the entertainment is? Miss Aretha Franklin. Mm. And she comes on stage, and she said, I want to introduce my friend. He's in the audience, Ray Scott. He's been traded to the Baltimore Bullets, and I'm going to sing a song for him, and I hope it happens. And the song is, You're Going to Hear From Me. Hmm. And that's one of the things I thought about when I was standing at midcourt with that Coach of the Year trophy, that Miss Franklin, when I was traded to Baltimore and then went to play in Virginia and then came back to Detroit and said, you're going to hear from me. Hmm. And Detroit was, again, welcoming me back into their embrace. And uh, 60 years later, I'm still in Detroit. <laughs> and I encourage everyone to please read Mr. Scott's book because you also go into detail about your friendship with Muhammad Ali. So maybe if you could just briefly talk about Muhammad Ali and the impact he had on you and just what was it like, again, being friends with such a, a, a giant of, of culture during oh. that time and even today. I, I don't know if I can do it quickly because what do you mean, <laughs> Muhammad Ali? There is no no quick story because he's such a... He was such a, a community person. He embraced fully his community. And in turn, the community had a love affair with him. Uh, but I just remember so many people talking about him. But my one of my favorite stories, very quickly, is he came to Ypsilanti, where I live. He came to Ypsilanti, Michigan. When Now, think of all of the people that he meets in his life. And someone said, you know, Ray Scott lives here. He says, Ray Scott, I know that guy. He promoted boxing back in the 60s. He's a basketball player. Call him up and tell him to come over here to the barbershop where I'm getting my hair cut. They call me up. I was When I hung up the phone, I wasn't five minutes before I was in that barbershop. <laughs> we embraced him. We took pictures. Um, 
that's the kind of guy he is, that that person that remembers you. He remembers people. Uh, I think he has a graciousness with people. And I think if that's the greatest thing that I ever remember about Muhammad Ali is always his embrace. He was a person that embraced the people of his community. Well, Coach Scott, you are NBA royalty. Um, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Edric Show. Uh, I encourage everyone, please go out and get Mr. Scott's book. You will, it's a, it's a page turner. Uh, if you're a fan of the NBA or just a fan of history, you will enjoy this book. Please go out and get it. It's a remarkable story from a remarkable human being. Coach Ray Scott, thank you so much for being on the Edric Show today. Thank you, my friend. It's so wonderful to be with you. Thank you. And if people want to get more information about the book or uh, to, is it Amazon? And it's just about everywhere, right? Amazon. And you can order from your bookstores now, but you can get it at Amazon. And I think there's like a 24-hour delivery. And also uh, Barnes & Nobles, the, the big national Barnes and & Nobles, but, and uh, Walmart and JCPenney. Great. And we'll put a couple of links in the, the YouTube uh, description where people can click right on it and get right to it. Coach Ray Scott, again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And best of luck to you, sir. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate so much being with you. You're welcome. This has been The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. Again, don't forget, in addition to our YouTube channel, you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a host of other streaming online platforms for your podcasts. Please hit the subscribe button. Make sure you leave a comment. Like our pages. We're on Instagram. Let us know what you're thinking about. Again, this is the intelligent the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. I want to thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode.